Dear God, I thank you for our time together today. We thank you for your precious and holy and inerrant word. And we thank you for the grace and the truth that it brings to our life. And we thank you that you did not choose men who are perfect or who were perfect to be in service of you. And all throughout the scriptures, we see examples of human frailty and uh, failed service and things that really do not live up to your standard. And we just stand in awe of your mercy and your patience and your kindness that you continue to help us and, and be with us and guide us. And so we thank you for your word today, Father. I ask that it would grant grace and hope to those who hear it, and that you would be with us this morning, and we ask in Jesus' name only. Amen. I got a little amen there. I like that. Well, today the scripture we'll be reading is uh, John <clears throat> chapter 21, verses 18 through 25. John 21. Verses 18 through 25. Scripture says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's the word of the Lord. So love really is the motivation for Christian service. It's really love that's the motivation for Christian service. And uh, I struggled a bit because the pericope here, the, the portion that I'm preaching from is, is a bit large, but really what happens before that really dovetails into this. In this section here, in 18 through 25, there's talk of commitment and discipleship. And that is where I want to focus. But just prior to this, in the few verses prior, that's when Jesus has the encounter with Peter after breakfast when he talks to him about, do you love me? And, and to feed his sheep. 
And so it's important to mention that love as the foundation because that really dovetails into what we're talking about. We really can't separate these two entirely as though they're two completely disconnected things. But because I only have 30 minutes, we have to, to do that somewhat. And so in verses 18 and the first part of 19, we see what Jesus is talking about that I would call the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. And then in the second part of 19, Jesus says, follow me. And there we see the example of discipleship. And in verses 20 to 22, there's the individuality of discipleship. So this whole testimony that's going on is really important because it demonstrates, it shows Jesus restoring Peter in front of the other disciples. Jesus is restoring Peter in front of the other disciples. So let's set the scenario up a bit. So earlier in verse 14, uh, we're told that this takes place after the resurrection. For, verse 14 says, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so Jesus and the disciples had an early morning breakfast of fish and bread by the Sea of Galilee. And in verses 15 through 17, after breakfast, Jesus has a conversation with Peter in which he tells Peter that if he really loves him, he will take care of those who are called and saved by God to, to tend the flock, to feed his sheep. And that in itself is a whole sermon. I'm sure at some point you've heard some tremendous sermon about that because that in itself is a tremendous conversation. It's a tremendous teaching moment and experience. And so he says to feed my sheep. And that's important because it's a mandate from Jesus to Peter about his role in the church, his pastoral role, and what's expected of him. And so by extension, that means Peter is restored by him. You have a job to do. There is something I am expecting of you. He did not say you are no longer you know, fit for service. He's giving him a mandate. And so Peter denied the Lord, he repented, and, and Jesus graciously restored him, and he commissions him. And so John is capturing this account because of, obviously, how important that is. It's very, very important. Now let's consider some important things about Peter and his relationship with Jesus. Just a quick flyover, okay? We know that Peter and our Lord interacted, we know that. But let's do a quick kind of Cliff's Notes version of these kind of important interactions and, and see what happened. And it'll give us a little bit more of a, a personal sense of what, what their human relationship is like. So if you know anything about Peter, he's known for having a rash and kind of aggressive nature. Kind of impetuous, we would say the word is. And that aggressive nature affected his devotion to Christ. Uh, I don't like to you know, take shots at, at the apostles or put them down or anything like that. Because truthfully, if, when you really read the Gospels, you'll see they're just like us. They, they did things and said things that the only reason we don't do those exact same things is because we have the benefit of hindsight. Like we have all of scripture. We can look back and know the whole story and 
We have 2,000 years of redemptive history, things like that. So some of the things that they did, we kind of go, how could you do that? Why would, that's the, how could you think that? That's crazy. But that's only because we're looking from a long time ago. Um, if, if a long time in the future, so in the past, in the, in the future. So if we were the same, if we were in those same situations, we would have done those same things. So I don't say this in a sense of, you know, put, put down the apostles and they were just a bunch of bumbling idiots or anything like that. They weren't. They, they really were normal human people just like us. They were just like us. And we should actually take some comfort in the fact that their flaws are revealed. And so uh, he was called by Jesus. Peter was called by Jesus. And that was Jesus' name for him, Peter, which means rock. He saw Jesus perform miracles. Uh, in fact, Jesus came to Peter's house and he healed Peter's mother-in-law, if you remember that. So that shows that God has grace for mother-in-laws. He was chosen to be with Jesus. Remember the transfiguration when Jesus is praying and Moses himself and Elijah appear to him. And there's the, the, this tremendous moment of transfiguration. He was chosen to be with Jesus when that happened, when uh, Moses and Elijah spoke to him. And he was with him in the garden before his crucifixion. He got some special praise from Christ and a special rebuke. So there was deep interaction on both sides. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a high commendation. You are blessed of God. He's telling him. No one can know who Christ is unless God enables us to see that. We don't just sort of figure it out. And he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's very heavy. That's very powerful. That's a huge commendation. So their relationship wasn't just this sort of shallow surface relationship. Man, he was rebuked heavily, just, just as harshly, for his opposition to Jesus' prediction of his suffering. So in, again in Matthew it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is talking about the suffering and what, what needs to happen and what is going to happen. And Peter is pulling him to the side going, Jesus, let me, let me explain to you what's supposed to happen. Let me, you don't really know what's going on. Let me tell you what you think is wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. And, you know, if you think about itching ears, if you were in that situation, you know, we know even Christ says, Lord, if there's any way I can not, you know, that, that this cup can pass, you know, humanly speaking. It, it's a painful experience. So he, he recognized right away, that's, don't, I don't need to hear that. 
Stop saying that. You don't know what you're talking about. You're looking at this from a purely human, pragmatic, practical perspective. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are not understanding what God is doing. You're purely just thinking about this at the human level. And with Peter also, Christ appeared to him on his own. 1 Corinthians. It says, He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. But when he's reinstated, when he's reinstated, Jesus makes some things very clear. He makes it very plain that even though he's going to serve, that Peter is going to serve, discipleship, this service, has three dimensions to consider. And it's these three dimensions or these three characteristics that really apply to all of us today that I'd like us to look at. So in verses 18 and the first part of 19, we see Jesus talk about, in this case, it's specific to Peter, but the potential cost of discipleship. And I want to preface all of this, everything that I'm about to say, again, remember that prior to this conversation, just prior to this conversation, he's establishing with Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Because with all that's coming, love has to be the motivating factor. Love is supposed to drive our worship, our obedience, you know, our, our moral behavior, all of that. Love has to, man, our giving, our service, our witnessing, our worship, our singing, everything we do has to be motivated. If it's genuine, it has to be genuinely motivated by love for Christ. So when we do, even when we do things in a sense of out of duty, you know, I, I need to do that. I know I should do that. Ultimately, if our hearts are in the right place and God is working in us properly, we understand that I have to be doing this ultimately motivated by love. I have to do this for the love of Christ. So it isn't just purely about, you know, the suffering and the do this and the cost of discipleship and, you know, hang in there and brace up and all that kind of stuff. It's not really just that. It's really saying that love has to be the foundation. This is why prior to this, he establishes with Peter, do you love me? And if you love me, feed my sheep. And that, that personal uh, pronoun, the my, when he says my, is a tremendous motivating factor for Christian service. Because pastoral ministry and serving, you know, whether we like, play piano or prepare communion, do worship, whatever it is we do, it's about serving the sheep. That's what it is. It's tending the sheep. It's taking care of people, trying to take care of their needs. Because ultimately, they're not ours. Like a pastor doesn't own a church. It's not like his little group to command like an army. It's you're an under-shepherd tending to Christ's sheep for him. And People are entrusted to him to do that. But with that comes challenges, because that means there's faithful service to Christ, which means that individual also is a disciple. And so Jesus talks about the potential cost of discipleship. And in the second part of verse 19, Jesus says, follow me. 
And so there we see that example of discipleship. Look at me, follow me. And then in 20 and 22, there's the individuality of discipleship. The cost of discipleship, the example, and the individuality of it. And we'll look at those things now. So if you look at verses 18 and 19 in John 21, 18 and 19. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And I, I don't even have to do a whole bunch of you know, interpretation right there because verse 19 tells you exactly what he meant. It says, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. That is what he's telling Peter. So if you take a minute, please turn to Luke 14.26. Luke 14.26. I don't want to create a, a persecution complex for us, but there is often, you know, in the Gospels, talk of death and sacrifice and just giving and pouring out our lives in service to Christ. And so you have to ask yourself, why would you do that? I mean, if, you know, to an outsider, why would you do that? I mean, if it's you know, service and this and sacrifice and you might die and, you know, your life on earth may not necessarily be pleasant or pert, you know, why would you do all that? And see, it goes back to, do you love me? Do you love me? Because love is what causes the service to endure with pleasure, with joy, not just. I'm, 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 I'm grinding through it. There has to be love that motivates it. And Jesus made that reality very plain. We think we're boarding a cruise ship when God save, saves us. And I heard somebody say it's actually a battleship. So in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so simply put, we have to be all in. No half-heartedness, period. No half-heartedness. And what's really beautiful is that we can see how Peter early on was, like I said, very impetuous. He was sort of impulsive and you know, talk first, think later, you know, kind of guy would jump in first, you know, pulling out knives, you know, things like that. And it's really amazing when you read and you see the growth that Peter has that comes out in his own epistle. And so in chapter 4, 12 through 14, this is Peter's epistle. This is that same person after, think about it, this is years after Christ has taught him these things. And you can see his growth. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, not grit your teeth and just bear through it. We have to find the joy in that. So, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
So he's making it really clear. We can have no illusions about the potential cost of discipleship. Jesus is very clear about that, and that's what he's telling Peter. In the beginning, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And I, I always try to read the Bible existentially, you know, put yourself in that person's shoes, try to think about kind of how you would react. And so I tried to think about that, and I remember uh, when I was on active duty, I remember deploying to Iraq, and I remember, you know, being in a C-130, and uh, we did what's called like a night vision landing. I wasn't a flyer. I was, I was on the plane being transported there. And we did this night vision landing, which means that you're in the middle of absolute nowhere. There's no electricity. There's no nothing. So even the moonlight, I mean, it's pitch black. You, you can almost not see your hand in front of your face. And the aircraft uh, has no lights on it whatsoever. I mean, it has lights, but they're all completely turned off. So just imagine walking in your house in, in the pitch black, in the dark. It's, it's completely black. You don't see anything. And so the pilots have, you know, night vision goggles, so they can see everything, but it is utterly pitch black. And so we go, we land on this dirt strip, middle of nowhere, the back of the airplane opens up, and we're just dropped off there in the middle of absolute nowhere. You don't know if (laughs) there's people over there, like, you don't know. It's terrifying. But even though we were in that tense situation, if things were to begin to happen, which thank God they didn't at that time, if something would have happened... I would not be surprised. I would say, I know why I'm here. I know why I came here. This isn't strange. And so that's what he's saying to to believers. You may be in some situation, but he's saying that's normal. Every time something happens, don't freak out. That's normal. These things happen for our growth and sanctification. And then I heard a truck coming. I heard a truck coming, and, you know, we were all too going, like, you couldn't hardly see the person in front of you, you know. And uh, we heard this truck coming, and all you heard is everybody was armed, and, you know, the safeties were on on our weapons. And all you heard, you sort of heard the sort of car, and all you heard was click, 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 click. And it was a bunch of safeties coming up. <laughs> so this, this vehicle pulled up, and they just said, get in, just get in, just get in, just get in. So we had to jump in the back of this little pickup truck, you know, bang my knee really bad getting in. And, but you just thought, okay, it's whatever, I'm safe. So you jump in, you lay in the back, you just take me somewhere, take me away. So even though it was a tense experience, even though it was a bit scary, none of us were surprised. We weren't going, oh my gosh, what is this? What's going on? We knew where we were. We knew what could potentially happen. There's a potential cost that comes, and we have to be aware of that. Carefully think about those things and consider the cost of discipleship. And so the conversation continues, and the last part of verse 19 says, and after saying this, he, Jesus, said to him, Peter, he says, Follow me. Hold steady, Peter. Follow my example. Think about what is coming. Now imagine, again, read the Bible existentially. Imagine that's you. Imagine that. Jesus is telling you, listen, here's kind of how it's going to go. How would you feel? I I, I could imagine for me it would be fear. There would be worry. Uh, you don't, you don't want to let Jesus down. I can imagine a flood of emotions that would follow. So, and, and the Lord is aware of that. So what is the very next thing he tells Peter? Follow me. 
He tells him exactly what he needs to hear in that moment, and that's the same thing we need to hear. Follow me. It's emphatic. There's an excla- if you look at your copy of the scriptures, there's an exclamation point there. It's emphatic. He's saying, brace up, follow me. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. And you see this come out again in, in Peter's theology. It's amazing. If you read, you know, you understand what Peter is like, and then you read 1 Peter, and then you see him saying these things, it's like a completely different person. It's phenomenal. But that is the transforming power that the love of Jesus has on us. Remember, because that's why everything was predicated in the beginning is, do you love me? That's got to be the foundation or else everything else is, you're not, you will not be sustained. You're going you're gonna to fail in your, in your ministry, in your ministerial service. So Peter says in his epistle, what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? In other words, he's saying, if you go to jail or you get in trouble because you're an idiot, that's because you're an idiot. That's got nothing to do with, that doesn't glorify God. So don't be an idiot and then go, oh, the Lord is persecuted. <laughs> no, you're, you're just an idiot. You did something dumb. There's no glory or credit in that. He goes, what, 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 what credit is there in that? He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And remember the do not be surprised. He says here in verse 21, for to this you've been called. I don't like that. I don't like that. I wish, you know, scripture said, you're going to have your best life now. You know, you're, you're going to be rich. You'll have a full head of hair. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wish, I don't like that. It says there's this certain kind of suffering that will occur when you do good. But he says to this, you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Follow him. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So it's not, you know, what would Jesus do? It's what did Jesus do? What did he do? And Jesus is the example of discipleship and obedience. He's the model that we look to. And we need to follow him. Something to consider is that as imperfect as the apostles were, they were still chosen. As imperfect as the prophets were in Scripture, they were still chosen. We know that. They were chosen to deliver God's inerrant, holy word. Correct? Think about this. We have no right to expect or to feel entitled to a better life than any apostle had. I'll put it this way. As an individual... I ask myself the question, what right do I have to live a life better than Paul? I don't want to live that life. None of us do. None of us would necessarily volunteer knowing that. But if we don't really grapple with that, then we don't handle suffering and discomfort and pain very well. Because we feel like, oh, something must be wrong. No, that's...
And so the writings of Peter show how well he came to understand this truth. Jesus said, follow me, and left us the perfect example. So now when Peter heard this, he responded this way. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so at first that seems odd. If the Lord was telling me, here's what's going to happen. Here's the nature of service and, you know, feed my sheep, you know, this whole thing. It would be odd to go, hey, Lord, what about him? Why would you be thinking about how I would be overcome? So it's a bit odd. So let's consider these things. Let's consider the bond between Peter and John. So when Jesus mentioned his betrayal, what did Peter do? Scripture says, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, which is exactly what we would have did. Like, is it you? Is it him? Is it her? Who? Is it me? The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. We know he's right. You know, someone in this room is going to X. And everyone goes, who is that? Is it, is it her? Is it him? One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask him of whom Jesus was speaking. Picture that. Jesus says that, and Peter goes, That's a unique kind of relationship. When Mary left the empty tomb after the resurrection, who were the two people that were there? So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and beat him to the tomb. So they're... They're pretty close. And remember when Jesus was praying the transfiguration just before Moses and Elijah appeared to him, who was with him? He took along Peter and John and James, but he took along Peter and John and went up to the mountain to pray. They're close. In Galatians, who did Paul say were pillars of the church? He said, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles. So Peter and John were very close. So when Peter is told about this cost of discipleship, he's just naturally expressing a valid concern for his friend. Yes, this is heavy. Yes, this is serious. What about John? What about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus responds, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So Jesus also could speak of the individual nature of a commission. So there's a discipleship where we're supposed to be here. What does scripture say? Don't forsake the assembly. Uh, encourage and stir up one another toward love and good works. To motivate each other. 
to love each other, recognize that we're sheep, to be pastored, to pour into each other, to be generous, to love one another. So there's this corporate communal aspect to our faith. It's not, it's, it's a team sport. This is not a, I just do my own thing. That's not, that's not the way this works. Jesus didn't do that prophecy. No, nowhere is that in scripture. Nobody said, I got my Torah. I don't need you people. I got my Torah. I don't need y'all. I got my own thing. Nobody does that. That's not appropriate. And so Jesus could speak about this individual sort of nature of a commission from God. So who was there for Jesus? And think about it. In his darkest moments, in his most difficult times, never did anyone wrong, never harmed anyone, never hurt anyone. But did he always have, right when he needed it, did he always have the best, most faithful, reliable friends? He didn't. But he's telling him this partly, you know, prophetically. He knows and understands. He knows all things. But on a practical level, he's going, you can't look at other people. You can't compare. Don't worry about what's going to happen to that guy. Don't worry that it looks harder for you than it is for them, or it looks like they've got it easy and... They've got it hard, and you can't do that. You don't know. Don't know. You're not supposed to know. And consider this. Again, Christ can talk about this because the man, the very person that he was talking to, denied him. So if anyone understands, don't, it's, don't, look, don't worry about what God is going to do with that person. You follow me. Do what, you, what I am commissioning you to do. And that's going to look different for different people. And so Jesus communicates to him that he needs to focus on his commission, on his calling, on his obedience. And so the cost of discipleship looks different for everyone, and it changes over time. So what it's like at 15 or 17 or 19 is not what it's going to look like at 51. It's, it's different. But no matter what, the cost is high. It's always going to be high. When you're young, it might cost you some friends and popularity. And when you're older, it might cost you a million bucks. It might cost you a business. It might cost you a relationship. It might cost you whatever. So you can't compare. Life is complex. And some seem to have an easier road than others. Some seem to have it harder. So consider for yourself, consider one of the most difficult things you've experienced in your own life. Just consider your own challenges or struggles that you may have had or are experiencing. Okay, and then here's Paul the Apostle in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So would you like to trade with Paul? That's, now, that's not to say that whatever you've been through is, oh, it's not that bad compared to Paul. It's actually not what I mean. Because 
Some of you have experienced things that are so incredibly difficult that inside you actually said, yes, I would trade with Paul. But that's exactly the point. You can't compare. So we don't make light of anyone's suffering. We don't downplay our own suffering. We don't do that. I heard a, a really good illustration one time, and there was a man in a classroom of some sort. I don't know what it was. He was I don't know if it was college or what. And he had a glass of water. It was just a clear glass of water. It was a small, small cup. And so there were about, I don't know, 20, 30 students. And he said, what is this? How much does this weigh? It was a small cup of water. And so the student said, I don't know, that looks like 12 ounces, 12 ounces. And another student said, eight ounces. And then the cup is glass, you know, so you thought, well, maybe the glass. Another student said, maybe 16 ounces. And so he let them keep, keep guessing, keep, keep guessing. And he said, it doesn't matter what this weighs. He said the absolute weight of this, whatever the absolute real weight is, is irrelevant. He said, what matters is how long I have to hold it. I mean, this book is not heavy right now, but the longer I hold that book, it doesn't matter if it's half a pound or 400 pounds, I can't hold it. So the issue is not necessarily, you know, what we struggle with or what's difficult, it's how long we tend to endure things. And so that is why we have to understand suffering in that way. It's different for different people. So it's important that we stay focused on what God requires of us. So whether you're a husband, again, motivated by love, Jesus says, husbands, love your wives. So if we love our wives, that means we will at least try to be obedient to what God says about marriage and toward our wives. If we're a wife, scripture says obedience. You need to be obedient to your husband. Quick note, this, I'm throwing this in for free. When God says, wives, be obedient to your husbands, if you go all the way back to Genesis, it's not because, remember, we're fallible human beings, right? It doesn't mean because he's perfect, he'll always do everything right. That's not necessarily why. The reason why you have to be obedient is so that there's someone to blame. And I mean that in a good, that's a true way. Think about it. If the wife, and I don't mean, you know, go, honey, go jump off a cliff. I don't mean that. But what I'm saying is, if you are generally trying to be obedient and stuff ain't working out, whose fault is it? It's the guy. It's not because, well, he's perfect. He's always going to do everything. No. That's what happened in the garden, right? Adam, what did you do? Oh, look at her. Look at Eve. And what did Eve do? Oh, it was a serpent, right? So God said, here's the order. I'm not going to go around going, who is he using? Whose fault? It's you listen to him because when it all goes downhill who even though like eve sinned well they both sinned but you know what i'm saying the way scripture says eve sinned what does who who does script who it says everyone fell in eve it says everyone fell in adam he's to blame so that's the reason for that so we want to stay focused on what god requires of us whether we're husbands wives mothers students, you guys look young, so I'm assuming you're students, some young students over there, whether we're students. And so pain and persecution will touch us. It's going to touch us. 
but we need to focus on the limits of our calling. Focus on loving Christ, which should be the motivating factor for what we do. Focus on faithfulness, not outcome. Focus on faithfulness, not outcome. Jesus says, you follow me. And here's a great quote from John Calvin. He says, Christ intended to put his hand on his disciple in order to keep him within the limits of his calling. It is no concern of yours, says he, and you have no right to inquire what becomes of your companion. Leave that to my disposal. Think only about yourself and prepare to follow where you are called. Not that all anxiety about brethren is uncalled for, but it ought to have some limit so that it may be anxiety and not just curiosity that occupies our attention. I can't say, well, I don't really care what happens to Neil. No, I care. I care what happens to Neil. Like, is he okay? Is he going to be okay? I want what's best for him. But it shouldn't just be a curiosity. I wonder what, what, what's God going to do with him. That's, that's not my business. But it should be anxiety, meaning it's an old word. It means it should be concern and love, not just curiosity that occupies our attention. Let every man, therefore, look to his neighbors, if by any means he may succeed in drawing them along with him to Christ, and not let the offenses of others retard his own progress. And so the message here is we see the potential cost of discipleship for all of us, the example of discipleship that we have in Christ, the individual cost of discipleship that each of us has to pay. And I want to end again by saying it: everything should be motivated by love. We should be pushing and striving and working only because we seek to be more faithful, not because it's going to garner me more favor with God, because it doesn't. If you are here today and you think you have not been uh, or you have not committed or seriously considered that Christ is calling you to discipleship, then I want to urge you to talk to someone in the assembly. Like, I don't know a lot of you guys, but you, you know each other. And so it's perfectly appropriate, you know, that one of you might say, hey, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? Can I get your number? I'll give you a call. You know, so reach out to one another. Talk to the, the leadership here in the church and uh, talk with them, counsel with them, and allow them to challenge you, to call you to a greater degree of discipleship. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your love toward us. Thank you so much for making it so clear in your word that even though struggles and difficulties may come, that they are for your glorification and for our, believe it or not, it's for our joy and it's for our sanctification that actually makes us better and more faithful servants to you. That is a, it is not hard to understand, but it's, it's very hard to swallow. And so, Father, I ask that you would just help us to embrace that and be committed to you and not fight against what you're doing in our life. But just like the apostle taught us, to recognize that it is for your glory and so that we may rejoice. 
And I ask that you would keep love in the forefront of our hearts, Father. In your name only we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.